Good morning again, church. It's great to be with you virtually. I'm a little bit jealous that you get to wear your pajamas, and I don't. Actually, you don't know. I might be wearing pajamas. But uh, glad that you're here. Um, good to see everyone logging on. And um, Bob, thank you, man, for leading us in worship and singing some of those great hymns um, of the faith. That's what we need right now. Uh, church, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, turn in them this morning to Romans chapter 8. Uh, this week I really struggled with whether or not to stay in Genesis. Um, in our study of Genesis, we're in chapter 23, and I really struggled about whether or not to continue with that study or to dive into another passage of Scripture that might help us make some sort of sense of what's going on in the world around us today. I don't typically like to veer from our preaching schedule. Instead, I like to normally, um, in normal times, just simply trust that where the Lord has us, it's something that we, we particularly need. Many times, um, what we end up covering um, in our verse-by-verse -verse exposition uh, seems to line up very well with what's happening in the world. Uh, but these are not normal times. They're not normal times. Um, I I can't in my life remember a time like this in the world. Um, our elders got together this week, and one of our elders, one of our more elderly elders, uh, John Keese, um, and he wears that title well, uh, he, he said he likened this, the only thing he could liken this to in his life is the Cuban Missile Crisis, a time when our country, and parents, you may have to explain this to your kids, a time in our country where everyone was gripped by fear and gripped by the fear of the unknown. Russia had the bomb and they had put the bombs in, in Cuba within striking distance of mainland United States. And uh, people didn't know what was going to happen. People thought it was the end of the world. People were in fear. But what we have here is on a global scale. It's not just America. It's the entire world. And so these are truly unprecedented times. But I think it's also a, an opportunity. This time is also an op opportunity for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity for us to demonstrate faith instead of fear. John tells us in his first epistle that perfect love casts out fear. So we know as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who claim to walk with Jesus that we cannot respond to a time like this with fear, that we need to respond to it with faith. Fear and anxiety and worry are simply manifestations of unbelief. They are at their core a manifestation of a lack of faith and trust. As followers of Christ, we know that we trust in a God who is both sovereign and good. And those are, those are two characteristics of our God that we have to hold to during a time like this. We know that he's sovereign, he's in control, and that everything he does and everything he allows, he's causing to work together for our good and for his glory. But we also know that he's a good God. He's a God of love and grace. He's a God of mercy, and he doesn't change. And so he's not in the least taken by surprise by COVID-19. He's not. 
But neither does he stop it, or at least he hasn't stopped it yet. But the fact that he doesn't stop it doesn't mean that he has ceased to be good. He is still good, and he is still God, which means that he has a purpose. He's got a plan in this. As hard as it is for us to comprehend what that purpose might be and what that plan might be, he has one. And his plans are always for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And this belief, the knowledge of that fact, should cause us to walk by faith and not fear during a time like this. And so we've got an incredible opportunity today and in the coming days for as long as this time lasts and continues to demonstrate that faith to demonstrate that hope that we have that confident assurance that we have that faith and that hope that the the world around us and the people in the world around us will increasingly long for so for that reason i've decided this morning to set aside our normal study of Genesis. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know how long uh, we will not be gathering physically together. I pray and hope that uh, by, by next Sunday we'll be able to figure out a way to do that on some scale. But for this morning, um, I've decided to set that aside and instead turn to a passage of scripture here in Romans chapter 8 that I believe, I, ho- I hope, will help us to begin to put our arms around and make sense of a time like this from not our perspective, not man's perspective, but from God's perspective. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 8 this morning, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 18, and I'm going to continue down through verse 22. So church, this is the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you corporately, even though we are the church scattered this morning. We gather before you corporately in our common faith in you in our common hope in the gospel, in our common belief that this book is your very breath inspired by you. And so, Father, we ask that you would cause your word to edify your church. And, Father, those who may be listening, who are perhaps even among us, Lord, who don't know you by faith, Lord, that you would use this passage of Scripture to bring a conviction of sin as well as a trust in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for just the means of uh, this way to speak to our church 
And I pray, Father, that you would uh, cause this time to be ultimately glorifying to you, both in what we say, what I say, what we think, what we decide, and Lord, the fruit that you bring about as a result of it. May you be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two, uh, really two points that I want us to unpack in this passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 8. The first is found just in verse 18, and that is that present suffering is far outweighed by future glory. Present suffering, whatever form it might take, is far outweighed. No matter how heavy it is, it's far outweighed by future glory. That's what Paul says. And then the remainder of the passage, he gives us an example of that in creation. And so the second point is that the suffering of creation reminds us of the gospel. The suffering of creation, the the effects of the fall on creation, points us to and reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ, reminds us of the gospel. So first in verse 18, Paul begins talking about suffering. But that's actually not where he begins this. He actually mentions it and he sets this up in verse 17. Let me read back in verse, I'll go back to verse 16. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him, with him. And so in verse 17, he sets this, this contrast up between present suffering and incomparable future glory. And then he begins to flesh that out in more, more in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, let's, let's try to unpack that passage. He starts with, for I consider. That word consider is key here. It's a, it's a computational term. It's a, a mathematical or, or an accounting term. It's the same word that Paul uses back in Romans chapter 4 when he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul meant there that that God was counting or considering Abraham's righteousness and considering it as, Abraham's faith and considering it, counting it as righteousness. He computed and considered the weight of Abraham's faith and and he counted it as righteousness. And by the way, the same is true for us. The very same thing is true for us. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we come to faith in him as our only hope for rescue from what we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against God, that faith is credited to us as righteousness. And through it is what is imputed to us is the righteousness of Jesus Christ by which we are made acceptable to God. There is no other way for sinful man to be made acceptable to a holy God except through the imputation of Jesus' righteousness, which is counted, credited to us, considered to us as righteousness. So that very same word is used here in Romans 8, verse 18, when Paul says, For I consider, or we could say, I count, for I compute, 
And what is that Paul is counting or computing? He's counting or computing or considering that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. So we see that Paul is computing the difference. He is considering the difference as if on a scale. He's weighing the difference between, on on one hand, the present sufferings of this time, and on the other hand, the other side of the scale, the glory to be revealed to us. And so let's look at those a little bit more closely. First of all, on one side of the scale is the, the sufferings of this present time. Now for Paul, Paul's readers, this, this would have included persecution. This would have probably included famine, uh, perhaps wars and disease. Uh, these, were, these were heavy things. And they, Paul was assuming here that his readers were experiencing them. He says he just assumes that they're experiencing suffering. He says the sufferings of this present time, whatever they are, he assumes that they're present. That was on one side of the scale. And again, those were heavy. They weren't light. They, they, they weren't insignificant. They were heavy. People died from persecution. Wars wiped out entire empires. Disease and famine could wipe out entire, entire towns. So these were not minor disruptions. They were heavy and scary times of suffering for them. But Paul put them on one side of the scale and he said they're far outweighed by what's on the other side of the scale. And what was that? Well, as he says, the other side of the scale was the glory that is to be revealed to us, which is referring to our ultimate glorification, the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us, the glory of God that we will see and the glory of Christ that we will become. You see, What God is doing in us, what God is doing in those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, whom whom God has saved by grace through faith, what God is doing in us is is that he is transforming us to look like his son. Even now, as you're sitting in your home, as you're um, where you are, as I'm where I am, even now as I'm speaking, God is changing us. He's transforming us and he's using times like this to do that. And he's transforming us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And one day that process will be complete. That process that's happening even now, that's, that you're undergoing, that, that change, that transformation into the likeness of Christ, one day will be complete. And you and I and those who know Christ will be changed from one degree of glory to another. That's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. When he said this, quote, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And so Paul is making this comparison here between on one side of the scale, the sufferings of this present time, and then on the other the glory to be revealed in us and to us. And and he he weighs them. He considers them. He counts them. And he says, man, the the sufferings of this present time are far outweighed 
by the glory to be revealed to us. There's no contest. No contest at all. It's not even close, church. The weightiness of the the glory to be revealed to us is so great that it's as if the sufferings of this present time are as light as a feather and they're just carried away. That's what Paul put that's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17 when he says for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what were, what was that light and momentary affliction that, to which he was referring? He talked about it earlier in that chapter when he said this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Which, by the way, is a figurative way of saying that they were always being subjected to persecution constantly. Suffering physically without end. He goes on. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. In other words, we're we're daily dying to self. We're daily being subjected to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So those are the light and momentary afflictions to which he's referring to later in that chapter. Those are the the light and momentary afflictions. And I don't know about you, but those seem heavy to me, right? Afflicted in every way. Persecuted. Struck down. Always carrying in our body the in our body the death of Jesus. Always being given over to death. That sounds heavy. But Paul says that they are light and momentary. Not because they're not heavy in and of themselves, but because compared to the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison, they are light. And again, the way Paul puts it in our text from this morning, Romans 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. They are far outweighed. Present sufferings far outweigh, are far outweighed by future glory. Now, I think it remains to be seen how much this COVID-19 disease and illness will manifest itself in suffering for your life and mine it may be very minor or it may be catastrophic we just don't know there's an unknown there but we would be naive to think that it won't cause any suffering to touch our lives today maybe it's just an inconvenience it's an inconvenience that we can't gather together physically uh, in this church building It's an inconvenience that we can't watch March Madness on television. It's an inconvenience that we can't go to school. 
Or maybe for some of our young people, that's not considered an inconvenience. Maybe for the parents, it's considered a major inconvenience. But the point is, there's a good chance that through this season, however long it lasts, we will probably be touched by suffering in some way, either personally or by someone that's close to us, that we know and that we love. And to the degree that it will cause suffering in our lives in some way, we ought to be reminded, church, that it's just temporary. After all, Paul says that these are sufferings of the present time. They're only for the present, and they don't last. If we were to do a biblical study of suffering this morning, we would find that according to the Bible, the, the suffering is three things. Three characteristics or three qualities of biblical suffering. Number one, and they're all, they all begin with N, for those of you who are taking notes in your home. First of all, biblical suffering is normative. <clears throat> it's norm. <clears throat> excuse me. It's normative. Um, it's, it's normal. We should expect it. It is a normal part of life in a fallen world. And so we should expect it. We, we're never promised life without it. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He means we should expect that. That's part of life in a fallen world. We're never promised life without it. In fact, I would say parenthetically that those who have promised life without it, those who are espousing a prosperity gospel, are having a difficult time right now, continuing in that false gospel. We're never promised life without it. Without it, We're promised, actually, that we will experience it. It's normative. But secondly, it's necessary. Suffering is necessary, which means there's a, there's a point to it. There's a purpose behind it. Even though many times it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for us to wrap our, our minds around what that purpose might be. We don't know. We are finite beings. But just because we can't wrap our minds around what the purpose and the plan might be doesn't mean that God doesn't have one. There's always a purpose and a point to his suffering. When we covered this passage in Romans a couple of years ago, we talked about three broad categories of a biblical purpose for suffering. Let me give them to you briefly. First of all, God uses suffering to draw us to himself. God uses times of, of suffering to cause us to be still and know that he is God, to take refuge in our strong and capable God. And he's, he's doing that right now. He's using this suffering to draw people to himself. And I am anxiously awaiting to see how God continues to do that. Perhaps revival is on the horizon. Perhaps there's an awakening on the horizon. We don't know. But God uses suffering to draw people to himself. Secondly, God uses suffering to mature our faith, to, to grow us in our faith and to purify us and make us more holy. Through testing our faith, uh, God uses heat, as we talked about a few weeks ago with Abraham and his tests of faith, God uses heat to purify gold. God uses heat in our lives to purify our faith and to make us more holy. And then the third reason why um, 
God uses suffering, the biblical purpose for suffering, is to point us to what's next, to point us to what's coming. And it's that purpose of suffering that points us to the fact that all suffering is not just normative and necessary, but thirdly, it's now. It's now. It's for this present time. It's it's, it's suffering of this present time. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.17, it's a light and momentary affliction. It's momentary because it's now. It's in this life. It's not for the next life. And this life, as we know, church, is just a blip on the timeline of eternity. So these sufferings of this present time, no matter matter how long they last, are just momentary. But he also says that they're light. And they're light not because they're not heavy, not because they're not significant in and of themselves. They are. And, And perhaps some of the suffering that we may be exposed to may be quite heavy. But these things, these, this suffering is, is light, not because they're not heavy in and of themselves, but, be, but compared to the future glory that is to be revealed in us and to us, they, church, they are light. It's as if they are as light as a feather. Present suffering, no matter how heavy, no matter how hard, is far, far outweighed by future glory. And we may have opportunity to apply that truth and that lesson in the days ahead the second point that we find in this passage is that the suffering of creation reminds us of the gospel paul goes on in the ensuing verses verses 19 through 22 to give us an example of how the suffering of this present time is far outweighed by the glory to be revealed in us and to us and that example that he gives is that of creation The picture that Paul paints in verses 19 through 22 is that of creation suffering. Creation is suffering, but there's a point of hope here as well in these verses. Because he points us to a day where the suffering of creation will come to an end. So let's walk through verses 19 through 22. In these verses, what we see Paul doing is he's personifying creation as a person. And the person that personifies creation in these verses is someone who is suffering, someone who is longing, eagerly looking for something, someone who is subjected to futility and vanity and pointlessness, someone who is in bondage and someone who is groaning. So let's look at each of those. First of all, the longing of creation, the longing of creation in verse 19 Paul says in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That phrase, eager longing, carries with it a connotation of anticipation and expectation. Eager longing. The word picture is that of of straining your neck in order to see any hope of rescue or redemption that might be on the horizon. That's the idea behind that phrase, Eager longing, waiting with eager longing. And there's a connotation there of urgency and of impatience. Why? Because something's not right with creation. Something's messed up with creation. And so creation is longing and and, and looking for 
the potential for hope. The, the, the personification of creation in, in verse 19 is, is that of a man that's stranded on a deserted island with no hope of rescue by himself. And, and, he's, and he's straining to look in the horizon and, and somewhere off in the horizon, he sees the faint outline of a, of a rescue ship. But man, it's a long way off. And so there's this, there's this hope of hope of rescue, but man, it's, it's a long way off, and, and, that, and that rescue can't get here soon enough. That's the personification of creation that we see in verse 19. Waiting with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. And, and, and that phrase is another way of, of referring to what Paul talked about in verse 18 when he talked about the incomparable glory of the glory to be revealed to us and in us, the glorious state, final state of believers. But, but why is creation anxiously longing for the revealing of the sons of glory? What's, what's wrong with creation? What's happened to mess things up so much that creation is eagerly longing for that hope of redemption? He tells us in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so not only does Paul um, describe creation as, as longing, the longing of creation, but now he describes the futility of creation. We know from Genesis 1 and 2 that creation was perfect. Creation began in perfection, and it began with a purpose. And the purpose of creation was to glorify God. Psalm 19.1. The, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. That was the purpose of creation. But something happened. And now creation is not perfect. It's not perfect. And not only is it not perfect, but because it's not perfect, now it can't do that which, which it was created to do. Creation cannot bring glory to God, at least in the manner in which it once did. And there are elements of creation now that do not bring glory to God. And so now creation suffers from this sense of futility, this sense of vanity and, and, and pointlessness because it, it can't do that which it was originally created to do to the degree to which it was created to do it. And so we see here the longing of creation and then the futility of creation. And then thirdly, we see, as Paul describes it in verse 21, the bondage of creation. Look at verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So now Paul personifies creation as a slave. A slave that's in shackles, a slave that's in bondage. In bondage to what? He tells us in bondage to corruption. The NIV says bondage to decay. It's the same word that Paul will later use in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he's contrasting the perishable with the imperishable. And so this word here refers to decay or corruption or that which is experiencing perishing. And he says that creation is in bondage to that. Creation is in bondage to decay and corruption and perishing. It's not a pretty picture of creation. And then fourthly, Paul talks here in verse 22 about the groaning of creation. 
The groaning of creation. Verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So now Paul personifies creation as a woman who is in childbirth, in the pains of childbirth. And back when Paul was describing this, when he was writing this letter, there was no such thing as an epidural block, no such thing as pain medications. And so this is the, this is the personification of creation as a woman in childbirth with no pain medication whatsoever. Screaming, groaning in the pains of childbirth. Not a pretty picture of creation. Anxiously longing for relief from suffering. Looking for an end to its pointless and futile existence. In bondage to decay and corruption and groaning as in the pains of childbirth. So man, what happened? What happened to creation? Because this is far from the picture of creation that we see in Genesis chapter 1. When God stepped back from from creating everything and said, behold, this is very good. This picture that we have of creation in Romans chapter 8 is anything but good. So what happened? Well, what happened was man and what man did in the garden and what man did in rebelling against God. What most scholars agree is what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 8 is that he's giving his commentary of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we know that Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelled against God in the garden by disobeying the one command that he had given to them to not eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden. But they disobeyed that command, and as a result of that, God then in chapter 3 pronounces curses on them. He pronounces a curse on Eve and on Adam and on serpent, on the serpent. But he also, he pronounces a curse on creation. L- listen to verses 17 and 18 of Genesis chapter 3. And then to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it, the ground that is. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. You see, before the fall, the ground was not cursed. Before the fall, there was no death in the garden. There were no thorns or thistles. In the same way that before the fall, there were no hurricanes, nor t- no tornadoes, no floods, no forest fires, no disease, no viruses, no infections. In the garden, everything was perfect, including all of creation. And just as there was no suffering for man in the garden, neither was there suffering for creation in the garden. Imagine that. No sickness. No pain. No illnesses, no thorns and thistles, no weeds in the ground, no poisonous plants, no death for animals either. The lion and the lamb will sleep together just as they are prophesied to do in heaven. But after the fall, it's a whole different story, isn't it? It's a whole different story after the fall. 
Now the ground does have thorns and thistles. Now there are weeds. Now there are poisonous plants that will kill you if you eat them. It wasn't the case before sin entered the world. Now there are diseases, some of which take the form of viruses or microorganisms that infect us that presumably didn't exist before the fall, or if they did, they were completely harmless. Now they do exist, and now they are not harmless. And so now we see things like the common cold and the flu, cancer, AIDS, infections, and now we see things like COVID-19 and the coronavirus as a result of the fall. Now, after the fall, our entire ecosystem is subjected to the fall of of man. Even our planet's atmosphere is affected by the fall. Every time there is a hurricane, every time there is a tornado, any kind of natural disaster, it's a reminder of sin. The fall of man has had catastrophic effects, not just on mankind himself and in his relationship with God, but also on creation as well. As a result of man's rebellion against God, not only was the serpent cursed and mankind cursed, but creation, as we see, was cursed as well. And so Paul tells us that those things are a result of the fall, such that now creation is longing, waiting expectantly for redemption and rescue. Creation now is uh, waiting for relief from this, Waiting for the revealing, he says, of the sons of God. Why? Well, because it was the rebellion of the sons of God that caused this suffering of creation. And so it will be the redemption of the sons of God that will lead to creation's glory and creation's redemption. So that's why at the end of verse 20, there's a glimmer of optimism. As Paul completes this picture This portrait of the suffering of creation. He ends verse 20 with the word hope. Look at that. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And there's hope here. And that hope at the end of verse 20 carries us into verse 21. What is this hope? Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption And will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so that longing, that that eager expectation that that creation is looking for, that rescue from its suffering, it's going to come. It will happen. That longing will be satisfied. And creation's groanings, as in the pains of childbirth, will one day cease and come to an end. The current suffering of creation is not the end of the story. There is coming a day, church, when creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And as Paul says, will obtain freedom when the glory of the sons of God is revealed. There's coming a day when all things, including creation, will be made new. There will be no more wars, no more hurricanes, no more natural disasters. No more man-made disasters, racism, hatred, war, abuse, and no more disease, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more viruses, 
No more infections. No more disease of any kind, for all things will be made new. And so church, when we look at creation today, and we see the suffering of creation, and we see, and that's what the coronavirus is. It's a manifestation of the suffering of creation. It's a manifestation of the effects of the fall on creation. So when we see that today, church, we ought to be reminded, we ought to be reminded of the gospel when we see the effects of the fall on creation, whether it's a natural disaster or a man-made disaster or a virus that causes a pandemic, we ought to see the gospel. Some have summarized the gospel by four words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, just like man, started out perfect, very good, without sin, but then because of the fall of man, sin entered the world. And not only was man changed forever, but so was creation. Creation was stained with the effects of the fall. But all of this points to Jesus Christ, who defeated sin at the cross. So that not only will creation experience redemption, but so will we. So will men and women who turn from sin and self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over them. Those who confess their sins and place their hope and their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue. But not only will we and creation experience redemption, but we know that there is coming a day when he will make all things new and restore us and creation to our original state, that of perfection and being very good. Or as Paul puts it here, when creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So as of last night, according to Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, the little tracker website that they've put together that tracks um, how many people in the world have been infected by this virus? According to that website last night, within just a few short weeks, 156,000 people have been infected by the coronavirus that has led to them being tested positive for COVID-19. As of last night, 5,800 people, over 5,800 people have died as a result of this disease. What started out just two and a half months ago in one country has spread to 142 countries. And all of these numbers we can certainly expect to grow. And some of them we might expect to grow significantly. So when we see this, when we see the effects of COVID-19, the effects of the fall on creation and the suffering that it causes, we should be reminded that biblically, suffering is normative. We should expect it. It's a normal part of life in a fallen world. But also we should be reminded that suffering is necessary, that there is a redemptive purpose in this, even if we don't see it in the slightest. And then thirdly, we should be remembering that it's just now. It's temporary. It's not forever. It's just suffering in the present time. 
And it's far outweighed by the glory that will be revealed in us and to us. So church, this too shall pass. But this aberration of creation, this coronavirus, it's also a reminder of sin. Because there were no viruses in the garden. There were no viruses before the fall. And if there were, they were harmless to us. But in a world stained by sin, one of the effects of the fall is COVID-19. One of the effects of the fall is the coronavirus. And so let the presence of this virus remind us of our sin. And let it remind us of our need for redemption. And let it also remind us, church, of God's provision for our need for redemption. And that provision for our rescue was his son, Jesus Christ. The hope that the world needs is not just medical. Church, the hope that the world needs is not just social distancing or more hand sanitizer. The hope that the world needs is the gospel. That's what this virus should remind us of. The hope that we have in Christ. Our need for rescue, both from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and even the very presence of sin one day. And it should remind us of God's provision for rescue from sin through his son, Jesus Christ. And so let me close by exhorting all of us. Let us not fear. Let us not hear these numbers and respond in fear, but with faith. Trusting and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that our God is both sovereign and good. Let us hold fast to that. Secondly, let us be reminded of the gospel here. Let us be reminded of creation and the fall and the redemption that is ours in Christ and the restoration that will come when he makes all things new. And then thirdly, let us be reminded that all suffering one day will come to an end. But it will only come to an end for those whom God has rescued and redeemed by grace through faith. Maybe you're listening to this this morning on this day and you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. The bad news is that if you do not come to faith in Christ, if God does not save you by grace through faith, then the suffering of this world is but a small glimpse of the suffering to come. That's why God sent Jesus to be the perfect sacrificial lamb on which the sins of man might fall so that in his place, in faith in him, we might be forgiven of our sins because Jesus paid for them. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I hope that you will as we close in prayer. Let's pray, church. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word that is so applicable to our lives, even in a time like this, when people around us are in fear, and perhaps when we might even be struggling with fear, when people around us are worried about the unknown, when there is something in the world that we don't understand, Father, you can make sense of, out of that for us. Your word lays it out very clearly for us. This is a result of sin. 
maybe not a result of my sin and the sins of those who are listening, but it's a result of the sins of man. It's a result of the fall. And as a result of the fall, it can point us to the hope of the gospel that you have provided redemption, rescue, forgiveness, grace, and mercy through your son, Jesus Christ, and his death, burial, and resurrection. God, we pray for those among us. Maybe they are young children in our homes next to us. Maybe they are friends across the street. Maybe they are co-workers who are battling fear right now or just people in our community or those who are listening online. God, we pray for those who don't know you by faith and they don't have an answer to the fear and the worry and the anxiety that they're beginning to feel well up within them and around the world. God, would you use us as a people of faith, not fear? Would you use us as a people of hope and the goodness of you and the hope of the gospel to share with them the good news of Jesus? And Father, for those who may be listening this morning who, who recognize that they've never placed their faith in you, God, may you even now give them the faith to trust in you, to simply cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that my sin separates me from you and that I have no way of making myself acceptable to you. But I believe in Jesus and I believe that Jesus is your son and that he lived the perfect life I never could and he died in our, my place on a cross. So I trust in Jesus Christ as my only hope for rescue. Bring me into the family. Bring me, make me a son of God. Forgive me for my sins against you and make me whole. God, we thank you so much that you are even now, you are drawing people to yourself through this suffering in our day and in our time. And we pray, God, that you would use us in that way. May we bring glory to you by facing this time with faith and not fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.